Thank you, Bishop, for sharing with us and uh, giving us a glimpse of what uh, All In looks like. And uh, that's really a question for all of us is to consider what does All In look like in my life? Uh, this phrase or this little uh, word or two words, All In, uh, it can be taken in a lot of different ways. Um, this is a, the, the title of a series right now that we're focusing on. What does it mean for me to be all in in my relationship with God, all in in uh, my relationship with others, and especially with uh, this church that God has placed me in? And so each of us is being asked that question, and we're raising that up for us to think and pray about, what does that look like for me? And so I want to invite you to think about that and be praying about that for yourself and for your relationship with God, with others, and with this church. The phrase all in at first, it can sound like a lot of different things. Um, I've already talked about the, the poker motif, if you will, you know, taking all your chips and pushing them to the middle of the table, a uh, sense of going all in. Uh, another way that we sometimes think about this phrase is, in my mind, is it kind of conjures up this motivational speech of a coach uh, before a game saying, we got to go all in, we got to go and, and leave it all out on the field and give it everything you got. And so when you hear all in, that might be what you think. But I think it's important for us to realize that this phrase all in, as we are talking about it, is not rooted in our own human effort. It's not that we're going all in and we're, we're giving it all of our energy alone, but it's actually really more accurate to say that all in, and when we think about it, it's rooted in human surrender, that we're going all in. We're letting go of everything that we're hanging on to. It's about letting go of the things in our life so that God can do something with them. Our time, our energy, these bodies that we happen to be given to us, our financial resources. How is God calling me to surrender and to go all in? And so that's tied to our commitment. That's tied to what we're willing to let go to Him. Our commitment to God, our commitment to our church. And part of that commitment is also our financial commitment uh, to this church and what it means for us to be financially committed to First United Methodist Church as a way of committing our lives to God. Our financial resources are connected to the things that we love the most. As Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. So if you want to know what you love, just look at what you think about and look at where you spend your money. Those will lead you in the directions to the things that you love. These can also be the most potentially threatening idols of our lives. And so we call people to be all in and to let go as the Spirit has, is leading you to do so. And one of the ways that that happens is uh, on Commitment Sunday, October 28th, two weeks from today, that's our deadline for being committed or all in for the year 2019 at First United Methodist Church. Those numbers that we get from people inform our budgeting for the next year and helps us to know how to do that and, and, and what that needs to look like. Last week, we talked about all in and transformation. What does it look like to say, God, change me, make me, use me the way that you want me to uh, be used and do your work in me? Uh, this week, we're going to talk about being all in in our relationships in our community, in our ability, our ability to invite others into our community and into our lives. 
We are relational beings. You are a relational being. We need relationships. If you have a baby that is born and that baby is fed and that baby is kept warm and that baby is given everything it needs physically, but nobody picks that baby up and holds it, nobody pulls that baby close and nobody talks to that baby, that baby will not live. That baby will die. That is a testament to the reality of our need for connection with one another. It is how God made us. When God made the first human, He looked at that human and He said, I need to make another one of these. This is good. I should make more than one of these. That's not a man-woman joke. Y'all can take that and go do with that as you will. But God says, look, it's not good for this person to be alone. I'm going to make someone to help him and to compliment him. I'm going to make someone to be, for him to be in relationship with. And so we have, in Genesis chapter 2, the first human-to-human relationship, Adam and Eve, which also happens to be the first marriage. We were made for marriage and for community. Um, excuse me. We were made for relationship and for community. Contrastingly, we live in a society that we call an individualistic society. And there are times when an individualistic world and our need for community don't play along well with each other. In an individualistic society, we see ourselves and we see others for who they are individually apart from their relationships. And in this world, the more independent you can be, the more worth and value you seem to have. I get this image of a, a Bruce Wayne, Batman type of character. You know, the hero in so many movies, uh, especially the superhero movies, is this person who doesn't need anybody else. They're their own man or their own woman. And they need no one else around them to be who they are. That's kind of the heightened part of what individualism really is. And in reality, it's a myth. Wouldn't it be nice to live a life where you didn't need anybody else? Where you could just be your person in and of yourself. And you wouldn't have to know anyone else. And no one else would have to know you. And you could just be the hero of the day wherever you go. That's really not the way we were made, is it? None of us are made to live that kind of life. And so that extreme form of individualism is a myth. When we see ourselves and others per, primarily in terms of who we are individually, then we're not seeing ourselves and others the way that God made us and the way that God sees us. And so on one hand, we want to preserve our individualism and our accomplishments and our achievements and the things that make us us, the things that make us special, the things that make us good and valuable in the eyes of the world. And yet at the same time over here, we have this need to, to be loved. To, to be connected to others. And sometimes those go together well, but sometimes they don't. And so while trying to preserve our individual identity in the world, and, and often a, a false form of identity, we still long for connection. And so what we do is instead of having real connection, we substitute that with other things. The, the void in our life that wants connection and relationships, we put other things in its place. Other things like busyness. We just do lots of things, maybe to keep us distracted from the fact that there's something in us that is, is longing for connection with, with other people and even with God. In uh, the book of Luke chapter 10, Jesus goes to a woman's house by the name of Mary and Martha and their sisters. And Jesus goes to their house and Martha is 
busy getting things done, working in the kitchen, serving, you know, getting the roast out of the oven, all that stuff for Jesus and his disciples. And Mary, who is supposed to be helping Martha in the kitchen, is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to the words that Jesus is saying. Now, I don't know what that does to you, but I'm thinking, yeah, Mary may should need to get up and help and not let Martha do it. Some of you women are like, well, those guys need to get up and get in the kitchen. Amen. Well, whatever that means, Martha comes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Sisters, right? Tell her to help me. And Jesus says, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken from her. Jesus is saying, look, Mary, Martha, you're choosing busyness over relationship. You're choosing tasks over people. How often do you and I let our anxiety distract us? from engaging in good and wholesome relationships. How often are we so busy trying to get things done, placing doing over being? Our tendency to see ourselves and others in terms of what we do drives this. Distraction and substitution for relationships, busyness. Another substitution for um, good relationships is just entertaining ourselves. How often do these things right here get in the way of good relationships? Anybody have one of these? This is a cultural phenomenon, and the first one of these came out in 2007, the first of its types. So it's only 11 years old, and we're still trying to figure out how to let these be a good thing in our life and not a bad thing. We're trying to figure out how, how does this help our lives and not distract us and pull us away from other people. How often is it easier just to look at this than to have a conversation with someone on the other side of the room or the other side of the table. Parents, we can be guilty of this as well, can't we? No generation, well, at least my generation and down at least, and I've seen generations above me, are not exempt from this separating us and causing a division among our families. Be careful with the power of the things that can distract you. Another example of substitutes for relationships, something that, tries, that we try to fill that void with, are what I call virtual relationships. They're, they're pretend relationships. We live in a very virtual reality-driven kind of world, and sometimes those lines are blurred. You look right now at the statistics on the use of pornography in the world, and you're seeing that people are longing to fill themselves up with some kind of connection, though it's not a life-giving connection, though it's not real. It's a substitute. It's not the real deal. And then finally, another substitute is instead of having some good close relationships, we just have uh, hundreds or if not thousands of, of shallow relationships. The last time I checked on my Facebook uh, this last week, I had 1,075 friends. Okay, raise your hand if you know how many friends you have on Facebook. Anybody want to confess that? Some of us may or may not look at that. 
And a thousand is probably par for the course. Some people probably have two, three, four thousand friends on Facebook. Some have 12 friends. Some don't even have Facebook. And, but it's interesting to, to see that of those 1,075 friends of mine, I have to ask myself, if I were in the hospital, how many of those people would come see me? If uh, I didn't show up in, in their lives for three weeks, how many of them would give me a call and see how I was doing to check, and just check on me to see how I was doing? If a loved one of mine was sick or died, how many of them would call me to be with me, to support me. Jesus had a lot of Facebook friends. When he fed those 5,000 people out on the, in the countryside, those were Facebook-like friends. They friended him that day. And in some ways, you could say he friended them, right? It was kind of that general multiple-level relationship. There's nothing wrong with having those but that is not a substitute for real connection. Within that group, Jesus had uh, several dozen people who followed him around that he mentored and discipled. Within that, Jesus chose 12 by name. After praying to God all night, he would choose these 12 to be his inner circle. And even within that 12, Jesus had three, Peter, James, and John. And at times he'd say, y'all come with me. We're going to go up on this mountain and pray. I'm going to, I need to go pray in this garden over here in this area. Come with me and, and please stand, watch, and wait and pray while I pray. You can see Jesus had groups of people that he revealed himself to. He made himself available to them. So these are some of these substitutes. Now, question, why do we make those substitutes? Why do we get entangled in busyness or virtual relationships or, or get entangled in the world of social media, shallow, multiple relationships? Why do we make those substitutes instead of having the real deal? I believe that one of the main reasons is because deep down, we are afraid. We're afraid of being known. We're afraid of somebody seeing us for who we are under the hood behind the curtain, seeing our, our vulnerabilities, seeing the things about us that we don't want others to see, and we're afraid they're going to say, no, thank you. We're afraid they're going to reject us. We're afraid they're going to not be our friend. And because of this fear, we play it safe and submit these substitutes in our life. Now, this is not new. This has all been happening all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve are in the garden. Sin comes into their lives. And the first thing that Adam and Eve do when they sin is they realize they're naked. And then they cover themselves up with fig loins. And then they go and they hide from God. That's what sin does. It causes us to hide from God. And it causes us to cover up and hide from one another. There's this sense of, I'm not valuable anymore. I'm not worthy. I am ashamed. Adam and Eve's relationship with one another was a direct reflection of their relationship with God. So this is nothing new. We have this desire to kind of hide, to hide not just from God, but to hide from one another. So what in the world do we do? How do we go all in on community? 
How do we go all in on relationships? Well, first thing we do is that we go well in on our relationship with God. If your relationship with God is not being tended to, then that will significantly impact how you relate to other people. We can't relate to others in a healthy way if we're not relating to God in a healthy way. And to relate to God in a healthy way, there's a a scripture in Galatians chapter 4. As we went through this Galatians series, this particular verse really popped out at me, and I never preached on it, but I've just been kind of stewing, stirring on it, uh, letting it just stir in me for a while. And it's this, it says, Paul says, but now that you have come to know God, and then he kind of pauses, and I imagine Paul saying, wait a minute, that's not exactly right. Or rather... To be known by God. Look at that difference there. I can ask you, do you know God? Do you know Jesus? Do you know the Holy Spirit? That kind of assumes that that we're in charge of that relationship. Oh yeah, I know God. I know about Jesus. I know about Him. I know this. I know that. But what if I asked you, does God know you? Have you allowed God to look under the hood of your heart? of your life? Have you allowed Him to look backstage behind the curtains of what you present? I think that's the key, is letting God know us. That requires that God is doing the searching. That means that we are simply saying, God, here I am. I make myself available to you. Psalm 129, verse 23. Search me, And try me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. That's a great psalm to pray, isn't it? God, would you search me and would you know my heart? That's what it means to let God in, is that we admit and we make ourselves available to Him in prayer and in other ways, and we say, God, here I am, every part of me. Not just, the, not just the parts that look good and feel good and smell good, but the whole shebang. I am right here. God, search me and know me. And so the first thing we do when we invest in community is we allow God to know us. It means that as we, second of all, as we let God know you, then you allow God to show you and lead you through His Spirit how to let others know you too. How to, how to find that three like Jesus found, or even that 12 that Jesus had around him. And this is something that is up to you and the Holy Spirit. Don't just let anybody into that three. Don't let anybody into that group of 12. This is something I want to encourage you to pray about. Ask God to show you the people in your life that he wants you to let in. This is, I think, one of the hardest things we can do in our culture. Hardest thing, one of the hardest things we can do today. And all those substitutes will continue to whisper our names and tempt us to stay shallow, to stay closed up, and to stay distant with a nice little painted smile on our face that says, I'm doing all right. But to enter into real community, now that's a challenge. There's a woman by the name of Brene Brown, and she is a researcher uh, basically on. just human behavior, and particularly around the area of connectedness 
and our connectedness to one another uh, and our sense of, of what keeps us from feeling connected. And one of the, the big parts that she talks about is shame and the role of shame in that. And Brene Brown gave a TED Talk. Uh, TED Talks are talks that are about 15 minutes long uh, over a variety of subjects. Uh, so this afternoon, if you've never seen a TED Talk, go home, Google TED Talk, T-E-D Talk, and see what you can pull up. If you pull up the most watched TED Talks, the fourth most watched of all the TED Talks is a talk by Brene Brown. And the talk is called The Power of Vulnerability. It's about 15 minutes long. And in this talk, she says, she talks about this idea of worthiness. People who see themselves as worthy. And people who see themselves as worthy don't do so because of what they've done or because of what they haven't done. But they see themselves as worthy because they believe that they just have this sense of love and belonging because they believe that they are worthy of love and belonging. She calls these people wholehearted people. And then she says this. The one thing she found in all the wholehearted people, the one common denominator of every one of them is that wholehearted people embrace vulnerability. Wholehearted people embrace vulnerability. That really seems ironic at first. You would think that people who have a sense of worthiness feel invulnerable. Like Batman, right? Feel invulnerable. But it's actually the other way around. When one knows who they are, then they're okay with facing their own faults. I think as Christians, we have a corner on the market of worthiness. In Christ, you are a person of sacred value and worth. That is your worthiness. When you know that your worth is based upon God's love for you, then you are free to be real about who you are, to be vulnerable to God and to the persons around you that God is leading you to be vulnerable to. To the degree that God's Spirit is leading you to do so. And so that's really the invitation today. Consider your own heart and your own mind. What is it in you that needs to open up? And so I want to pose these reflection questions before you. And uh, if you have not gotten one, I want to make sure that everybody gets one of those all-in cards. Uh, they are in your Connect card baskets. If you would take those Connect card baskets and pass those back down the row, there's a little card in there that says all-in. Grab that and a pen. And this is not to turn in. This isn't for us to see or anything. This is for you to look, hear the voice of God, write down whatever you feel like God's telling you to write down, put it in your pocket and take it home and go pray about it this week. Okay, we'll have a few minutes here in just a second to pray, to think, and to write down what it is that you feel like God is showing you. But as you're doing that, I want to pose the questions before you. Question number one. How in your life is God leading you to open up to Him? To say, God, I want you to know me. Second of all, how in your life is God leading you to be open up to 
select other people in your life? Where is the Spirit leading you to invest in good, wholesome, life-giving relationships? And then finally, how is the Spirit of Jesus leading you to be all in in your relationships here at First Methodist?